thanks again uh, for being in the house of the Lord with us this morning. We have been for the last uh, little bit walking through the Lord's Prayer together, uh, looking at it line by line, uh, petition by petition, uh, to see if Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, that kind of assumes that uh, we have to be taught how to pray. Um, he taught the disciples to pray because praying actually doesn't come naturally. It's something we have to be taught how to do. And so we wanted to, for uh, a little while this summer, to take a look at the Lord's Prayer and to look at other places in Scripture that might support uh, what Jesus is talking about. Um, and so this morning we arrive at the petition uh, where we ask uh, the Lord to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. Uh, last week, if we, uh, if we talked about forgiveness and um, forgiving our debts as we, have, as we forgive our debtors, forgive our sins, Lord, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Um, if last week was about laying down our arms in forgiveness, asking the Lord to deliver us from evil um, and to lead us not into temptation is us really putting on the armor of God and walking into a world that is against the things of God. Praying for the Lord to deliver us, as Jesus taught us, assumes what is true about a world that is turned in on itself and a world that is full of sin and which we are powerless against unless the Lord emboldens us. Fightings within and fears without, just as I am would say, uh, the Christian life is a battle for holiness against the foe that longs for anything but that. And so Jesus is instructing us to pray this way because there are some things that can only be done through prayer. You're not gonna white knuckle discipline your way through it. Uh, you're not gonna willpower your way through it. Uh, Jesus says, you must pray for my protection from the evil one. So as we are accustomed to do in this series, we are taking the petition of the Lord's Prayer uh, and looking at a passage um, that kind of shows us how that petition is fleshed out. So on this Lord's Day, we're gonna look together at Psalm 73. So Psalm 73 and what the Lord has for us. So we're gonna, have, uh, we're gonna be in Psalm 73 together, verses one through three, and then verses 13 through 26. So let's give our attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word from Psalm 73. This is the word of the Lord. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's get down to verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me in your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray together. 
Jesus in verse uh, 25, as we just read, uh, your servant Asaph says, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. And Lord, that's just not true for me. Willing to guess it's not true for my folks here either. Uh, The Lord will want it to be. We want it to be. I said, Lord, would you give us the mercy uh, to preach ahead of where our hearts are? Uh, Would you give us the mercy to believe ahead of where we are in our hearts uh, that we can actually aspire uh, to get to a place where we desire nothing but you? Uh, Lord, you are so kind uh, to bring us to your house. You're so kind to bring us before your word. Um, Lord, would you forgive the sins of the messenger for their many? Uh, Lord, would you forgive the sins uh, of those hearing uh, that you would crack open uh, the dark clouds of confusion uh, and allow the sunshine of your glory uh, to poke through, uh, to warm, hardened hearts uh, and turn them back to yourselves. Uh, So Godhead, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So we're going to see three things here in Psalm 73, 1 through 3, uh, and then 13 through 26. Uh, Three things we'll glean from this passage. Uh, We see the shift in Asaph, the sanctuary of God, and the supremacy of Christ. The shift, sanctuary, and supremacy. So let's look back at verse 1. And Psalm 73 was written by Asaph, which may not mean much to you. Uh, He wrote about 15 or so of the Psalms, um, and he was essentially the worship pastor in Israel. Uh, He was charged with leading worship uh, in the temple. He was an Israeli Joseph Patton. Uh, He was tasked with coordinating worship. He put together the song book. The Psalms are a song book for the church, uh, the hymnal of the people of God, oftentimes, and it's not wrong. Uh, We look at the Sims, uh, the Sims, what does that mean? That's a computer game. Uh, The Psalms as, uh, as a prayer guide, which is certainly good. Uh, We also must look at the Psalms as a hymnal uh, and as a songbook. And so what we have here is Asaph who is writing about all the cries and laments and joys and distresses of following the Lord. And then he put these to music and he let people sing about it, which is super weird. This is like reading his journal. And then he's like, hey, here, church, you can sing about this for the next, until Jesus comes back. I think of Psalm 51, this great psalm of repentance uh, when King David had fallen into sin with Bathsheba uh, and all the things that he writes about that, how he recounts that, how he knew that he had fallen and how gracious the Lord was to him. And then David gives it to Asaph, tells him, put some music to it and let's sing this forever, his deepest and darkest sin on display for the church been crazy. And Psalm 73 really is no different. Asaph starts the song by proclaiming that God is good to Israel. God is good to Israel. He is good to all those who are pure in heart. A great way to start out a worship song. Elevation will cut it. You'll make a lot of money. God is good. God is honest. He said, God is true to those that he loves. All right and good things to say and all fun things to sing about, to be sure. And then we get to verse 2. And he says, but not for me. God is good and God is true, but I'm struggling. Things were slippery for me, he says. I got tripped up. I have one foot on the banana peel. I became envious of the arrogant, he says. Look at verses two and three, or rather verse three. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
God is good to Israel. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. Except for right now. Because I'm looking out and there's a lot of wicked people who, who seem to be skating by okay. And I'm here struggling, Asaph is saying. This is the Chris Tomlin of Israel. This is the guy who leads worship. This is the John Newton of Jerusalem, the head worship guy in all the land. And he says this to the people that he is leading in worship. God is good, and I'm having a really hard time believing it. I'm struggling to believe it because it sure seems like everybody else is doing all right. For the sake of time, we didn't hit on verses four through 12, but y'all, old Safi, our boy Asaph here, he goes hard. On, in verses four through 12, read it when you get home. He calls them fat and sleek like an orca. He says, he says their eyes are bulging out. He gets so mad at the prosperity of the wicked. He asks, why are they better looking? Why do they have great bodies? Why do they have good jewelry? Why do they get the best food while the rest of us are, are meal prepping chicken and rice? He has shifted from seeing God clearly to now focusing on what's going on around him and he's stuck. He goes from proclaiming to complaining. The state of his heart is much like the state of my own heart. God, why them and not me? Why them and not me? Why do I have to work so hard? And they seem to make it look so effortless. Why did they get the cut on that record and I didn't get it? Why did they get the promotion and I didn't get it? Why does it, why does it look so easy for all of them? This is the question I had to ask. Lord, why did I get adult braces? Why does it have to be that way? You said if I followed you, that I would have a life full, I would have full life, life to the full, and it seems like my life is just full of disappointments. Death by a thousand cuts, and Lord, my feet are slipping. This is what he says. I've almost stumbled. My steps have nearly slipped. Asaph is in a fight. He's in a fight for his life. He's in a fight for his very soul. Just like you are. Just like I am. Asaph has a choice now. Does he abandon all that he's believed? He has said there's a little glimmer of hope in there. God, I know that you're good, but it sure doesn't seem like it. If you're good, why'd you put me in the family you put me in? God, it's, it says you're good. But I'm having a really hard time understanding this. We're witnessing Asaph deconstructing right before our eyes. He's doubting, he's questioning. He knows there's some things that are true. There's some things that seem to be thrown away. How does he rebuild? I saw what the wicked has, he says, and I wanted it. I wanted what they have. There, that guy's wife seems to be a lot more enjoyable than mine. Those kids seem to be better behaved than mine. Everything just seems to work out for them. The devil has come in. He's starting to tempt Asaph. And what we know from scripture is anytime the devil comes in with temptation, we lose. Adam and Eve, they lost. Abraham, he lost. Jacob lost. Joseph lost. Moses lost. Noah lost. King David lost. Temptation as we know it is really hard to overcome. In fact, scripture tells you, you're not gonna overcome it. Mightier men than you, mightier women than you have fallen. 
So what has to happen? How do we get out in front of what seems to be this immutable law of nature? That when our hearts shift from focus on the Lord to focus on something else, what keeps evil at bay and how does God's kingdom keep moving forward? What keeps evil at bay and how does God, who says he's victorious, how does that happen? Because the deck is stacked against us. And if we are, as the writer of Second Chronicles said, powerless against this great horde, then what do we do? Let's go back to Psalm 73 with our second point, the sanctuary of God's house. This is what Asaph is instructing the people that he's leading in worship to do. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph is tired. He's so tired. He spent his time trying to understand why do the wicked prosper? Why do the evil seem to make it? Why do those who don't seem to give a lick about you, Lord, seem to be getting ahead? You told me if I followed you, that things would work out for me, and that's not the case. Asaph is so weary, and he doesn't know if he can continue believing. And he says, I've pondered it, and it's this wearisome task. It's like heaping tired on top of tired. Those moments when you slam your, uh, slam your head on the pillow. Hopefully you just lay your head on the pillow. When you lay your head on the pillow right before you go to sleep and you're running your day back through your head, this is what Asaph is doing all the time. God, you said you're good. But why am I so jealous? Why am I so mad? Why am I so angry? So what does he do? Look at verse 17. He says, until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Asaph went to church. He looked at all the prosperous wickedness around him and his own lot in life. He looked at how much money everybody else had, how little money he had. Even then, worship leaders weren't making any money. He said he went to the sanctuary and then he was reminded that in God's house, it started to make sense. I don't know the amount of time between verse 16 and verse 17. You know, we kind of read it as if it happened instantly, but I bet it took a while. But Asaph went to the house of the Lord and what would he have seen? He would have seen the altar used for the burning of sacrifices. The ritual of bringing an animal in that you could barely afford to the house of God to slay for the atonement of your sins. Only to have to bring it in again and again and again. The priest continually cleaning the altar. He would have seen the blood. He would have smelled the smells. He would have been reminded of this. Before the face of God, we are all beggars looking for bread. He found that in the house of God, things were different than they were outside of there. Within these walls, he says, there's no pretense. There's no favoritism. There are no haves and have-nots. There's only the have-nots. That we're all pilgrims, we're all strangers wandering through this world. He would have heard the playing of the instruments and the singing of songs, songs crying out for mercy, songs crying out for mercy before a God who really did love his people, a God who did bind himself to them through covenants. When they got to the temple, they weren't passing out business cards, they weren't networking, they weren't looking for dates. They were looking for God together. What Asaph found there is a community. He found a community of people who looked and thought and and acted like him, a a community of people who didn't look like him, 
all here wondering what God had, liturgy, singing, the people, the belonging. And he found repentance in the majesty and in the sweetness and the weirdness of prayers going up and grace flowing down. Asaph said his heart was put at rest. And we hope that's your experience. We're not naive enough to know that it might not be. That when you come to the house of the Lord, is that what you find? We prayerfully intend for it to be that when you enter in, even though you can't really find a seat and it's five trillion degrees, (laughs) that this place could actually be a refuge from what you find out there. That in here, things look differently. This is what Asaph is saying. There's wickedness all around. But when I go to the sanctuary of God, I encountered something different. As Elliot said once, that this may be the only time of the week that those who struggle to pay their mortgages rub elbows with people who could easily pay everyone's mortgages. Where those in recovery and those in real estate development sit together, where those on this street of cutthroat consumerism, there sits this old building with not a lot of flash and toilets that sometimes work. And for some reason, Could it be different? Could it be described as beautiful? Could it be described as life-changing? Or those with record deals sit next to those who can't carry a tune in a bucket. Asaph says the only place in the world this is gonna happen is in the sanctuary of God. It's not gonna happen out there because they'll cut your throat to get ahead. But in the sanctuary of God at the nine and 11 and five, that we can strip off pretense and step into the presence of of something amazing. And then a shift happens in Asaph where he has shifted from God is good, but now I'm struggling. He's now shifted back to maybe I was the problem. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a wild beast toward you. What Asaph is saying there is that he was incredibly selfish. If you've ever witnessed, I don't know, like a cow or whatever, whatever, pick your beast of choice. They're probably looking out for themselves. You know, you can domesticate an animal, but it really is just doing it to get a reward. It's still all about, it's kind of eating grass. And he says, I was a brute before you. I was getting only what I wanted. He only saw what he wanted to see. And all that he saw was everybody else making it. He had one focus and it was to get what he wanted. God, why can't I have what they have? God, why did you lie to me? So I'll consume Asaph, I'll be a beast before you. I'll be a bull in a china shop. I'll scream loud, I'll drown others out. I'll step on their head while you're drowning. If it means I get to eat, he had become what he was complaining about. And he said, what snapped him out of his brutish slumber was being around the people of God, being around people who really do love you and really do care about you because there's a God who really does love you and really does care about you. This is what Asaph said that he found. He found a place that was different than the world out there. Author Harrison Scott Key, uh, not to be confused with Francis Scott Key, who also wrote a banger, but Harrison Scott Key he wrote this book called How to Stay Married, the most insane love story ever told. Um, and in this book, y'all, he is telling the story 
of how he and his wife managed to salvage their marriage uh, after she cheated on him twice with the same guy. And he said what helped him get through it is because he found a church that didn't kick him out. That's why he said, I found, the, I found a church and it was the kind of church that you could show your heart to everybody and they would just love you harder and hand you a beer. And this is what makes church so hard because we all theoretically want that. We certainly want the beer. Give me that, but I'm not gonna show you my heart. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna fake vulnerability. I'll fake affection. I'll fake intimacy because we don't really trust this. What Harrison Scott Key is getting at, what Asaph is getting at is when your life has hit the bottom, you have no choice but to trust this. Asaph is saying it doesn't work this way in God's house. The reason the wicked and the proud don't come in is because they don't think they need it. I shared the gospel with a friend of mine recently, not to brag. Um, he, he told me, hey, I said, hey man, why don't you just come to church with me? And he said, I'm not gonna go to church with you because I haven't needed someone to read me a book since I was seven. And I said, you couldn't read when you were seven? No, I was kidding, I said <laughs> Uh, well, it, sounds, it sounds like your fault, Jared. Um, but as funny as that is, Amelia, it was really funny. It revealed something about my friend. It also revealed something about my heart uh, when I respond likewise. To go in here, to share my heart with y'all, to share my heart with the Lord, it means I have to stop believing that the world revolves around me and I don't wanna do that. That's why grace never sells. I've, I've quoted this, so I'm gonna quote it till I die. Robert F. Capon said, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. The world of winners will buy case lots of moral advice, grosses of guilt-edged prohibitions, skids of self-improvement techniques and whole truckloads of transcendental hot air. But it will not buy free forgiveness because that threatens to let the riffraff into the supper of the lamb. God's house is full of hypocrites because hypocrites are all there are. God's house is full of sinners because sinners are all that exist. But God says they're my hypocrites. They're my sinners. They know, they know they're lost even when they forget it because on top of what Asaph finds in God's house and the worship and the liturgy and all the sweetness that lies within that, what he finds above that, above the friends, above the community, above the like-minded travelers, is he finds God himself with arms outstretched, which brings us to our last point, the supremacy of Christ. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. Whom have I in heaven but you, he asks. And then he says, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Grace and mercy and kindness and liturgy had jarred him back to what he knew was true. And it was this, even as sweet as his sanctuary experience was, even as sweet as it was of what he found in the liturgy and in the singing of the songs and in the hearing of the scriptures being read and in witnessing the community and experiencing the community, Asaph said it still doesn't compare to what he finds in the arms of Jesus. Asaph doesn't put his trust in what he felt to be true. We sing the song, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. This is what Asaph is saying. 
Y'all, as sweet as this place is, as sweet as the communion that you find, as great as your preachers are, as wonderful as your staff is, I was joking about the preacher part. If you don't find Jesus here, it's a waste of time. Because all this is gonna go away. This is why Asaph says, your flesh and your heart may fail. Y'all, your body's gonna give up on you. Young professionals, you have no idea what's about to hit you. <laughs> right in the mouth. I turned 41 and it all went downhill so fast. Like it hit harder than Will Smith hit Chris Rock that time. Like it hit so hard. And Asaph is saying, your body's gonna give out on you. Cancer's gonna happen. Sugar's gonna happen. Getting older's gonna happen. And what this is gonna do is it's gonna lower the drawbridge to let jealousy into this castle of self-righteousness that we've all built. God is saying, because of how much I love you, I'm actually not gonna let you get away with worshiping something other than me. Your body's gonna give out on you. Your heart's gonna give out on you. Your heart's gonna lead you astray. It's gonna send you down a thousand different paths, chasing excitement, chasing security. And Jesus says, all of it is fleeting. All of it. Even when you get the spouse that you think you wanted. When you get the kids that you think you wanted. All the friends that you can throw, like you can't, you just throw yourself into these friendships and you're like, this is so sweet. It can't get any better than this. Jesus says, someday it's gonna fail you. It's gonna let you down. And when that happens, where will we turn to compensate for what we are not? And where will we turn to compensate for who we are not? Asaph tells us Jesus Christ is our strength and our portion forever because Jesus Christ is the only one who can actually bear you. He's the only one who can bear the weight of your sin, bear the weight of your shame, bear the weight of your disappointment, your jealousy and your envy, bear the weight of your personality. We try to make our friends bear this. This is why our friendships are so hard. We try to make our spouses carry this. That's why that can be so hard because they're not designed to carry that weight. Jesus says, I'm the only one that can do that for you because your heart and your flesh are gonna fail you. They're gonna collapse under the weight of the expectation that you put on them. But Jesus says, I'm your strength and your portion forever. So why can he say that? Lead us not into temptation. As I said earlier, anytime we've been led into temptation, we've failed. Except for when Jesus did it. That when he was baptized in scripture, in the, in the New Testament, it's one of the two times that God speaks out loud. Both times when God speaks out loud in the New Testament, he's doting over his son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then the Holy Spirit sends him out into the wilderness where he meets Satan. And Satan is tempting him every day for 40 days. We're on day 25 or day 26. Jesus hasn't taken a bite of food and Satan says, I know you're hungry. If you're really the Lord, just tell that rock to turn into a piece of bread and then eat it. I know you're out here wandering around in the desert, Jesus, seemingly like you don't have a plan. Let me go show you. All this land could be yours. Just curse God. Jesus responded, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the very words that come out of the mouth of the Father. When temptation was up against Jesus, Jesus won. 
So when he defeats Satan in the desert and he then makes his first public speech, he says a few words. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand, now repent. What he meant is that the devil has been defeated. The kingdom is here. Things are gonna look differently now. That Jesus and his people are on the move. And then he ends up on a cross. Hanging there for, our, for my sins, for your sins. You probably know the story. But again, Satan thinking that he had won. Imagine the silence of Easter Saturday. We know about Good Friday and all that took place there. We know about the triumphant uh, victory on Easter morning, but imagine Easter Saturday, silent Saturday as we call it, where everybody's dreams were as dead as Jesus was. All these disciples who had put their hope in him, left their houses for him. He's not laying dead in the ground. They scatter and hide. But then Sunday morning hits and then oxygen hits his lungs and Jesus walks out. The devil thinking he had won, now hears the footsteps of the only one capable of crushing his head. Commentator Michael Wilcox says that that is true. If God can do that with the master plan of hell, then there is no evil that he in the end cannot turn to good. If God himself can take the devil's greatest scheme and use it to serve his ends, then it must mean that the evil within you and the evil without you will be conquered in the same way. It'll be conquered by Jesus. Somebody conquered by us trying to fight it. You're gonna lose. But here's how it is conquered. Jesus has done it for you. So you know that temptation that keeps, keeps nipping at your heels all those times you keep failing, only to wind up again and again and again. I want you to take this truth that I've never fallen in the, in the face of temptation and I'm now gonna apply that to you. God is now gonna see you as he sees me because we are connected to him, because we're washed in his blood, because we're covered in his blood. Jesus now takes our sin and our shame and our failures and our arrogance and our complaining and our whining, he takes all of that and he puts it on himself and then he takes his righteousness and he puts it onto us. He says, the work is done. So when we find ourselves like Asaph looking around and wondering what will happen to the wicked, we know what happens to the wicked. They're gonna meet their end. And only the people of God are gonna be left standing. So that's what we put our trust in. It's the only way we can pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Jesus, in your goodness and in your kindness, would you make this real to us? Lord, could you let us actually believe um, that you're for us, uh, that you haven't uh, forgotten us, that you haven't just saved us and left us to our own devices, but that as we sing, grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. Uh, Jesus, can you make this uh, a reality for all of us? Lord, open our eyes, uh, melt away the hardness of our hearts. Uh, let us see that you are the one who is for us. Uh, you are the one who is with us. Uh, you are the one that truly loves us. Holy Spirit, would you turn uh, our hearts to you now? Holy Spirit, for those who are here and not believing, 
Uh, would you call them to Jesus? Uh, for those who are here and believe but feel a little tired, uh, Lord, would you bring comfort to them? Uh, Lord, would you turn our mourning into dancing? Would you turn beauty and, or, our ashes into beauty? Would you uh, be Jesus for us? And we'll leave here rejoicing because of all the great things that you've done. That's in your name we do pray. Amen.